right. So, <laughs> it's about that time. Feeling especially scattered one day, a friend joked that she should have a baby since it meant singularity of focus. It was a great remark. Oh, really? Just have a baby? But I immediately knew kind of what she meant. When my children were born, time seemed to operate differently. Rather than the usual diffuse task-oriented time, which is punctuated by things that I'm looking forward to or not, each moment was deeply inhabited. I was rooted in the present based on necessity and joy, anticipating and meeting my children's needs, absorbed in their activity. There were stretches of sleep-deprived haze, but the experience seemed so extraordinary. As a result, I had singularity of focus. I was paying attention, paying it eagerly, and I was attuned to the world in a way that I usually am not. I felt like a poet in my careful attention to things. One of the things that I appreciate about my discipline is that literature, especially poetry, makes me more attuned to the world around me. Annie Dillard, Marilyn Robinson, Frederick Beekner, Edward Abbey, my list is idiosyncratic, but the writers that I most enjoy are ferociously attentive, and they encourage me to be a field naturalist within my own life. It's not that I take up their convictions, although sometimes that happens, it's that, oriented by their words, I look for things that I otherwise miss. Lots of writers, thinkers, and speakers here in chapel have noted how unfortunate at best and insidious at worst contemporary life is for distracting us and misdirecting our attention thanks to pervasive screens, a culture of overwork, perpetual entertainment, commodified technological stimulation. Since so much of contemporary life works to insulate us, to narrow experience, writers can rouse us, if not making Annie Dillard's of us all, then at least bringing us closer than we would be without them. For me, something at the intersection of faith, learning, and life, which is the theme of this faculty series, is literature, or more precisely, poetry. And I suppose my thesis is today, be poets, all of you. Better yet, be psalmist, all of you. Here I'm thinking of our prophetic roles described in Scripture. We are called to see rightly, recognizing things as they are. Such a view is guided by the biblical categories of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, each of which authorizes us to see more deeply and more comprehensively. So when I say be poets, I mean seeing things as they are, according to each of those categories, recognizing, one, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, two, the consequences of the fall, three, God's redemptive work in this life, and how he's making all things new, expressing that hope that he will finally make all things new. Seeing the world rightly has been central to my trying to think faithfully about my discipline, which treats poetry as a unique means of representing the world. But it's been important, important in my devotional practices, too. I find myself praying regularly to see things as I should, prompted by Scripture. I've asked God to help my kids see the world this way, too. Given that so many things in life conspire together with our own sinful hearts to make God seem irrelevant, 
For me, trying to see the world rightly has meant imbibing imaginative works that deepen my engagement with Scripture and help me view the world more worshipfully. It's meant, to quote Dr. Madaleme, consuming works that open up windows into the world as it really is, a world charged with the grandeur of God. Okay, first, what do I mean by poetry? Here I'm being broad with my definition, but I just mean language that cuts through to the truth of the thing, that conveys what things are really like. As one writer puts it, writing for her is primarily a process of elimination, removing all the dead language, the mottos, the slogans, the myths of your historical moment. To speak personally, the very reason I write is so that I might not sleepwalk through my entire life. Often poetry communicates what things are really like creatively and vividly. Perhaps my favorite simile of all time is from Marilyn Robinson's novel, Housekeeping. Here it is. When we came home, Sylvie would certainly be home too, enjoying the evening, for so she described her habit of sitting in the dark. Sylvie in a house was more or less like a mermaid in a ship's cabin. She preferred it sunk in the very element it was meant to exclude. I first heard this passage on the radio, and I nearly drove off the road because it was so arresting, which I suppose is proof that I went into the right profession. I often use Robinson's simile to introduce poetry in my classes because it shows simply and clearly how similes work and what they can do. The narrator tells us what it was like to live with her Aunt Sylvie, who enjoyed keeping the house dark at night. But the house-ship comparison, that is, Boats keep out water like houses can keep out darkness. We feel the strangeness of her home life with that surprising picture of a boat on the bottom of the ocean with a mermaid inside. In my experience, poetry offers expressions like Robinson's, which suggest meaning that simple paraphrases can't quite capture. Also, poetry communicates what things are really like memorably in a way that sticks with you. For instance, when my son was a baby, I had the experience of being surprised by this aspect of poetry. Trying to still Robert's crying when he was a newborn, poetry lodged deep in my memory, came bubbling up to the surface. Some of it was the result of a well-intentioned but foolish extra credit assignment that I gave when I first started teaching. I said I would give extra credit for every poetry line that the students (coughs) recited. And what's more, as a challenge, I said I would recite one for every one they did. So all I did for the whole semester was memorize poetry. (laughs) So when my infant son cried, I tried to calm him, and in desperation, I recited everything I could remember, including poetry from high school, junior high, poems by Longfellow and Frost, things like W.H. Auden's As I Walked Out One Evening, Merle Haggard's Mama Tried, snippets of Shakespeare, John Milton, John Denver, Seamus Heaney. Bill Davis once joked that he read math problems to his children and they became engineers. I realize he said this partly in jest. If that's true, however, and it works like that, maybe my son is going to be a Shakespearean country singer with a terrible Irish accent. In any case, I look forward to telling him about these poems when he's older. But the thing is, I was struck by poetry's capacity to stick in the mind, bubbling up as it did from years ago, It's pleasing rhythms, soothing as they did my son's crying, even for a moment, and it's power for seeing the world. In in my case, a new world in which I was a father. 
And the poetry that my son heard every night and that he hears still was this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Okay, thus ends my explanation of how poetry works. First, being poets by recognizing things as they are through the category of creation. That is, seeing the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In cultural heritage of the West, one theme that the students and I notice is wonder at the world. For instance, uh, David Ruchnik points out that Aristotle's conception of the theoretical life, um, that is, that we are uniquely suited to looking at, studying, and wondering at the world, begins in that disposition of awe or wonder. So from Aristotle all the way down through Lucretius and um, even uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau in the 19th century, for instance, there's this refrain of wonder at the world. And sometimes the students and I will meditate on this move from wonder to worship. That is a move from recognizing uh, creation, or excuse me, nature, to seeing it as creation. That is this um, moving from a glorious spectacle to a theater of God's glory. To put it another way, when we read perspectives outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition, observing their wonder at the world, we notice this absent fear of the Lord derived from the gift of revelation, um, which disposes us to revere the author of existence who's created us in his image and who loves us. It's a move not just to recognize wonderful complexity, but the person behind it all, actively and lovingly and sustaining everything. As the psalmist put it, the earth is full of his unfailing love. This disposition to celebrate God as wonder leads to recognition of the sovereign Lord as a matter of trust and faith. It's also a matter of seeing rightly. As John Calvin famously said, there's not one little blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. Let me offer you an example of this kind of seeing with the lens of creation from the Barham home. Summers are miraculous at our house. The crowded schedule of the school year opens up and we are freer from the demands of the strict schedule than any other time. I've noticed that this freedom produces a change in all of us and there seems to be a surplus of leisure. Another thing happens too. I spend time reading people who make me more attuned to the things around me and I actually become more attuned to the things around me. For instance, here's an example. It's a hot July morning, and today my four-year-old son is bringing water and a cup from his kiddie pool to the back of the, corn, back of the yard where I'm planting cast iron plants, an anniversary gift for my wife. He dumps the water in the flower bed and says, a tasty shower. <laughs> I laugh in surprise as much from his creative use of language as the ice-cold water that fills my gloves. His expressions are unusual and associative with transposed adjectives and adverbs and nouns and letters. He speaks just like he helps this morning, with exuberance. His two-year-old sister copies him, pouring water from her cup more carefully, after which she notices me and says, Hello, Daddy. (laughs) They race back up the yard toward their mother to fill their cups again. Prompted by poets, I am awake and attentive. With the four of us enjoying this summer morning, the little bounded space of our yard seems idyllic. It's the shape of joy, our lives together, like the veins on the oak leaves just above us, spread out but all connected at the home, at the heart. In my worst moments, I fear that these times are so fragile. But that summer day, they seemed inevitable, solid, certain, 
and my capacity too meager to do justice to the goodness around me. My inadequate assessment was a testament nonetheless. I feel like I recognize creation, the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. To borrow a phrase from the poet Richard Wilbur, all these things are there before us, there before we look or fail to look, there to be seen or not. As for the second category, being poets by seeing the consequences of the fall, I have a habit of staying up after everyone in my house has gone to bed. After our usual bedtime routine, our house takes on an atmosphere altogether different from our daily domestic life. It's quiet enough to hear the sounds of the highway outside, the rush of air from cars as they pass, occasional fragment of music or rumble of bass from an open window, as well as the sidewalk next to our house when people walk past as bits of conversation drift free of context. Not only does the landscape of our home take on curious features at night, but so does the world beyond our windows. Sitting in a quiet house with everyone else asleep, it's the darkness outside that I think about. I suppose my habit of staying up after everyone has gone to bed started when I was a kid. In fifth grade, inspired by a John Wayne movie, I was suddenly liberated from fear. I was previously plagued by an imagination that populated the dark with all sorts of phantasms. But after that movie, I awoke in the middle of the night and walked around our house in the dark, immune to the creak of its old timbers, moving in and out of the shadows, boldly looking out the window, all things that would have caused great anxiety previously, um, defying all the monsters that could possibly be staring back. I still remember the feeling of exultation. If walking around at night liberated me from childhood fears, just a few years later an experience undid all of that confidence. Having risen in the middle of the night, I looked out from our kitchen window in the dark, only to see a prowler emerge from the darkness. I watched him walk along the house and then disappear toward our backyard. That accidental glimpse was a confirmation of worst fears, and I froze. I just stared through the window, reconsidering the dark. Now, eventually, I turned on the porch light and ran out into our yard to do what I'm not sure, but he was gone. To this day, I don't know who that man was or what he was doing. Another illustration of darkness that I often think about. Sitting in his living room chair one night, my uncle watched the Boston Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians in the American League Championship Series. Just then, someone walked up to his house with its peaceful rural setting surrounded by farmland on the outskirts of a town of just 200 people and fired a pistol at him through the glass of the back door. By the time he made it to the back bedroom to check on my aunt, the shooter had fired three more times and then disappeared, leaving four bullet holes in the door. They never found out who did it. A reporter asked my uncle why someone had stepped out of the dark and tried to kill him. I don't have a clue, he said. It's a mystery to me. That juxtaposition of his enjoying a beautiful sport with its order and grace and that mysterious act of violence just makes evil in the world more stark. And I think of it at night. Writers clarify the darkness, putting a very fine point on the brokenness of this world. For instance, I read Alexander Heyman's essay on the loss of his daughter, and suddenly this world seems like a place where such things are inevitable. Or I read Susan Neville's essay on racism and her family history. Or Maria Hummel's poem, Station, about a child with infirmity beyond medicine, beyond repair. They cannot fix you, she says. They try and try. 
Days you are sick, we get dressed slow. Often prompted by grim social media posts and the news of the day, a catalog of all the harms that can come to them, I pray for my children. Please let them be spared and heal, help, and deliver those in the midst of such things. Please, God, I ask. As it comes into sharper focus, I experience grief at fallenness. The horrors, the consequences, illness, accident, evil, all of it. And so I talk to the one who felt the full force of it, more so than I can possibly imagine. As Kelly Capick said in here in chapel two years ago, Jesus fully enters into lament for the world, and it kills him. It kills him. Christ uses Psalm 22, the poetry of David, to express his anguish, adopting, proclaiming, and transforming these words, as Kelly puts it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finally, as to being poets by seeing in light of redemption and consummation. Viewing the world through the Christian meta-narrative culminates in worship. We delight in creation, we weep at the destructiveness, the degradation, the horrors of sin, and we glory in God's deliverance of his people, both now and finally. Ultimately, then, seeing rightly is about rejoicing in God's person, who he is. To quote the psalmist, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Seeing rightly centers on Christ. He is the only reason we can even tell this story, which begins and ends with him. He is the word through whom all is made. He bears the fullness of the fall and is undone by the brokenness of the world. And he redeems us from the hand of the enemy. And he will come again in glory. We live with the hope of ultimate restoration, and Scripture calls us to be articulate about that hope. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Thus, viewing the world through the Christian meta narrative means seeing hopefully. Certainly, we live in a fallen world, and not to acknowledge the fallenness to dismiss it as incidental or accidental is a lie. But in Christ, we have the full assurance of hope that he is making all things new. Sinclair Ferguson notes that Satan, going all the way back to his first words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, wants to undermine our assurance of, trust in, and sense of God's love for us and his generosity towards us. Having the consequences of the fall obscure the fact that the earth is full of his steadfast love and obscure the hope that we have in Christ is a diabolical stratagem. As the poet Jack Gilbert puts it, we must have the stubbornness to accept gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. The importance of the Christian imagination in cultivating this way of seeing is partly why Dr. Matawame and I started the annual Nick Barker contest. We wanted covenant writers to use their gifts to see the world as wonderful and resonant with the holy, holiness of God, recognizing even if implicitly the person behind it all in the very grammar of their storytelling. Now, seeing the world biblically and resisting false pictures requires not just the intellect. It requires the imagination and the emotions as well. Of course, a literature professor is going to say, read more poetry. 
But I would encourage you to find the writers that wake you up to biblical truth because we are imaginative and emotional creatures as much as we are thinking creatures. And take a class with the brilliant teacher of poetry, Bill Tate. Amen. To confess, in some ways, it's easier to make it through the day with distractions like technological stimulants. They can minimize discomfort. But if indulged, maybe they fuel the mottos, the slogans, the myths of our historical moment that Zadie Smith describes, and they prevent us from practicing the faith that we are called to, of seeing as we ought. And if we neglect biblical attentiveness, seeing things through the lens of Scripture, then stories and meanings will be foisted upon us, encouraging us either to sleepwalk or be anxiously prodded through this life. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear, as Jesus says in Matthew 13, 16. So again, I encourage all of you, be poets. See things as they are by means of the Christian meta-narrative. Otherwise, the rocks and trees will cry out. In fact, they do cry out, for creation declares his glory. There are evanescent moments that you will be uniquely privy to, moments of beauty and suffering and redemption and hope to which you can testify. So, immerse yourself in scripture, find the writers that wake you up to biblical truth, and be poets yourselves. Tell the truth and shame the devil as the saying goes. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for your provision. I ask your blessing on this community. Help us to see as we ought. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We rejoice in being your children. Again, bless this community. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.